When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about John Coltrane, the tenor player who started out with Miles Davis in the 50s and then in the mid-60s set out to pursue music as a quest for spiritual enlightenment. His classic work was A Love Supreme, a single piece 33 minutes long. It became the most popular record of his career. Now a live performance from 1965 has been discovered and released, and Coltrane people are calling it nothing short of a revelation. For comment, we turn to Adam Schatz. He's the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and former literary editor of The Nation. He also writes for the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and The New York Review, where his piece on John Coltrane and the new recording of A Love Supreme appears online at nybooks.com. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, John. John Coltrane's most popular recording before A Love Supreme, his signature song was My Favorite Things. It's from The Sound of Music. It's a waltz. It's by Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's Middlebrow Broadway and then a Hollywood studio classic where Julie Andrews sang about whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles, and warm woolen mittens. How did John Coltrane turn this into his song? You know, Amiri Baraka uh, said that Coltrane was the first jazz musician of his time to break out of what he called the Tin Pan Alley Penitentiary. <laughs> Coltrane, who was a brilliant composer, you know, made a name for himself by taking this saccharine, Tin Pan Alley song and turning it into a piece that sounded like, I don't know, some whirling dervish. Uh, you know, first of all, what instrument does he play my favorite things on? He plays it on soprano and he gives it this kind of wailing Eastern tinge. He'd been listening to a lot of Indian music, especially uh, Carnatic music. And he plays the piece over 14 minutes. It's, it's uh, rather austere, it's almost minimalist. He imbues my favorite things with this dark sense of, of enchantment, which is as far from the original as you can imagine. In a sense, Coltrane's My Favorite Things is not the Rodgers and Hammerstein My Favorite Things. And playing it on soprano saxophone instead of his instrument, the tenor, what's the significance of that? I think that the soprano in that performance has more of a kind of Eastern uh, sound. Uh, than the, the tenor saxophone might have. But Coltrane's tenor saxophone, of course, is most unusual. He has a sound that is almost free of vibrato until the end of his career. It's very dry, it's kind of gnarled. It's not the kind of smooth sound that some people seek. He has a sound that is very earnest. It's not a playful sound. This is not Sonny Rollins. This is not Sonny Rollins quoting from the American popular songbook. Coltrane didn't quote other people's songs. 
there's some there's a there's a kind of gravitas in Coltrane's playing, which is sui generis, I think. Well, Coltrane became famous as part of the Miles Davis quintet in the late uh, 50s, especially on Kind of Blue, 1959. Miles Davis was the angry black man who, you know, turned his back on uh, white audiences at in live performances. That was not John Coltrane's persona. It was certainly not his life. Miles had a, a reputation, I think, somewhat um, unfair for being unfriendly to audiences because he turned his back. He actually did that because he wanted to hear himself better. It wasn't, um, I don't think it was an expression of insult towards his audience. But in any case, Coltrane had a very different attitude. He was so, he had such concentration on what he was performing that uh, he scarcely acknowledged the audience, but for, for very different reasons. Uh, he seemed to have no thoughts other than what he was doing with his horn. He was not a showman uh, in the least. He wasn't a defiant showman or an ingratiating showman. <laughs> he just played his saxophone and uh, he was said to even sleep with, with his instrument. He was practicing his instrument for up to eight or nine hours a day. I mean, this was a kind of uh, discipline that lends itself to legend and to myth-making, which is certainly the case uh, in Coltrane's life. Miles Davis was the embodiment of 1950s and 1960s cool. Uh, John Coltrane wasn't cool. He wasn't hip. He, he was a, a very purposeful, diligent, quiet man of the black middle class who had little interest in being part of any scene by the early 1960s when he became involved with the woman who became his second wife, uh, Alice McLeod, later Alice Coltrane, uh, they were living in uh, Dix Hills in Long Island in a leafy suburb. This was not the jazz life. He had known a bit of the jazz life, of course, early on during his 10-year uh, addiction to, to heroin and during uh, in a period of, of alcoholism. Um, and he wanted to get as far as he could from the jazz life as possible. And, and he did by absorption in his spiritual life. In that spiritual life, he, he was quoted as saying, I believe in all religions. Was he serious about that? What did it mean? He was. Uh, Coltrane was very uh, ecumenical in his approach to spirituality. I mean, he had been raised in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, his his uh, grandfather had been um, a legendary uh, preacher, very fiery, uh, courageously militant in his defense of, of Black rights. So he grew up in this ambiance of Southern militancy in North Carolina and of uh, deep spiritual worship. But when he returned uh, to spiritual practice in 1957, which is the great year for him, the year of, uh, of his epiphany, he began to develop a very personal idiosyncratic form of spirituality, not attached to any one religious institution. It was a mix of Sufi Islam, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and still other uh, beliefs. He, he was generous, he was universalistic, he was a, a very much a man of peace. And he said that Every person, I think he said every man, but this is 1965 or so, has access to the spiritual truth. I think that was a very profound belief of his. And tell us how he wrote A Love Supreme. He wrote A Love Supreme in 1965 after a five-day retreat 
at his own home. He basically locked himself into a room and came out five days later announcing to Alice Coltrane that he had received, it was 1964, and shortly after receiving uh, this composition, he went into the studio and recorded it with the group that was known uh, as his classic quartet. Uh, his producer at Impulse Records, Bob Thiel, was not particularly keen on Coltrane performing a suite of original compositions. I think he probably wanted him to play a standard and to maybe play a few of his own compositions, but to mix it up, nothing too challenging. And Coltrane insisted, and by then he was, he was such a popular artist that he had the power to make his own choices and to make them stick. You write at the New York Review website, nybooks.com, that a love supreme conveys a sense of searching and striving with a world-weary melancholy and transcendental yearning. How does Coltrane do that? In a love supreme, uh, Coltrane builds something very complex on something that is very simple, this, this four-note motif that has become almost as recognizable as the defining motif of Beethoven's uh, Fifth Symphony. He takes this motif and we hear him play it uh, in every key of the saxophone. And then we hear Coltrane's voice overdubbed 19 times intoning a love supreme. And, and this you know, gives a kind of hypnotic uh, intensity to the opening melody uh, acknowledgement of, of the suite. Coltrane also has a way of creating this intense sense of beauty and then tearing it apart and, and he has to rebuild it again. You, you sense that, that, that the, the achievement is always somewhat fragile. It's always at the risk of being torn apart or taken down. And so there is this kind of agonistic struggle that goes on in each of his improvisations that feels kind of existential. A Love Supreme was a studio album with my favorite things. He played it many, many different ways, improvised around. It seems like he didn't want to do that with A Love Supreme. Is that right? That, that's correct. A Love Supreme was released in December 1964. And until recently, we were only aware of one performance, uh, one live performance, uh, which was uh, a performance at the Antique Jazz Festival uh, at Juan Les Pins in the summer of uh, 1965. It's a beautiful recording and stood alone and, and apart, a very faithful reproduction, although a longer one, uh, of, of the original. And I think that this fed into a, a perception that Coltrane did not want to tamper with his masterpiece. The contrast with uh, My Favorite Things is quite stark. My Favorite Things was a piece that he reinvented hundreds of times. However, as it turns out, there is this other performance uh, of A Love Supreme, uh, which he performed live in Seattle in early October 1965 with the classic quartet, but also with a few other musicians. Now, the people who perform with him on this version, in addition to the drummer Elvin Jones, the pianist McCoy Tyner, the bassist Jimmy Garrison, the other three members of the classic quartet, are the tenor saxophonist Pharaoh Sanders, who played with Coltrane until the end of his life from 1965 on, uh, 
Carlos Ward, a Panamanian alto saxophonist, and Raphael Garrett, uh, a bassist. So it's a septet recording of A Love Supreme. In the 60s, a lot of jazz people recorded works of militant protest music, Max Roach, Charles Mingus, Sonny Rollins, you know, the Freedom Now Suite. Coltrane was considered the true black revolutionary of jazz at this point, but he wasn't really political. Is, is that a fair statement? I'm not sure that he wasn't political, but in a way he, trans, he, he transcended politics. He transcended, he was above the fray. He was a kind of um, a mystical and spiritual figure and viewed by other musicians, especially by black musicians, as a, as a prophet. John Coltrane was certainly no stranger to the civil rights struggle, and he expressed uh, admiration at one point for uh, Malcolm X. Uh, he attended one of his speeches. But on the whole, Coltrane didn't really get mixed up in politics and rarely acknowledged the political in a direct way in his song titles. However, Coltrane embodied a kind of a shift towards Africa and what was then called the third world in his music. He did that in terms of the kind of music that he was bringing into jazz, the use of drones, the use of certain kinds of repetition, the intense emphasis on percussion and polyrhythms. He was Africanizing jazz, taking it away from the jazz of Tin Pan Alley, for one thing. So the whole emo emotive thrust of the music pointed towards Africa and the third world. So did his titles, titles like Africa, Ogunde, India, Liberia. So the spiritual dimension of the music had, you might say, an implicit politics, if not an explicit radicalism. And what's more, Coltrane wrote probably the most important civil rights elegy of his time, a piece called Alabama in memory of those four black girls who were killed in the church bombing in Alabama. And Alabama is a short and absolutely harrowing uh, song. I believe that Alabama was used in Eyes on the Prize. And uh, it's, I think it's notable that Coltrane used that one word, Alabama, to signify the depth of the sorrow and suffering of his people in, in, in 1963 and that whole era. And it survives and I think retains a power that transcends that of some of the great civil rights pieces, which are wonderful, but which feel like time capsules. Alabama is eternal. In the last two years of his life, Coltrane recorded more than 10 new albums. What are those like? Those albums are, I think, some of the, the best work of, of his career. They were albums like Sonship and, and, and Transition. They are the albums that show Coltrane uh, moving beyond his modal work, moving beyond even uh, albums like A Love Supreme, um, exploring a greater freedom uh, in improvisation, uh, emphasizing his relationship to Elvin Jones uh, even more with these extended 
uh, duets uh, between the two of them. They're not always the easiest uh, to listen to. They, they certainly are not background music, but I think they're some of the most exhilarating work that he recorded, and they're collectively uh, known as, quote-unquote, Lake Coltrane. In conclusion here, what makes the new live recording of A Love Supreme important to us today? For one thing, it's a fantastic album of live jazz. Okay, I think we have to underscore that this is, this is great music. And although Coltrane's a little muffled uh, in the mix, he sounds absolutely glorious. And it's just incredibly exciting to hear him play his masterpiece. But I think the other reason that this album is important to us is that it shows how Coltrane's conception of his masterpiece continued to evolve as his own music changed. And he was changing very rapidly. I don't think there's any group in, in music at that time that evolved as rapidly as the Coltrane Quartet other than the Beatles. I mean, you look at the difference between early Beatles albums and albums like Revolver or the White Album and Abbey Road. I mean, that's quite a journey. And Coltrane's journey uh, is just as dramatic in some ways, I would say more dramatic. In The Love Supreme, the studio version, Coltrane is having a conversation with his God. It's a very introspective album. It's the confession, the expression of an individual believer. This album is more like a church service. It's more like a group celebration. It's wild, it's incantatory, and it's filled with exotic ethnic percussion instruments that were to become very much the soundtrack of so many jazz albums in that period. So it looks back to the orchestral sound that he developed in albums like Africa Brass while pointing towards this future that he helped to create, but in which he couldn't fully participate because he died in 1967. So we're hearing Coltrane's past and the future of jazz in this album. Adam Schatz wrote about John Coltrane in the newly discovered live performance of A Love Supreme for the New York Review of Books website. You can read it online at nybooks.com. Adam, this was wonderful. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.